This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. I want to pivot just a little bit here while we're still talking about um, while we're still talking about repentance and how that works in the life of a believer. Um, I, let's turn to page 174, um, particularly the 21st argument of the fifth disputation. Um, <clears throat> we're not going to be addressing all of Agricola's concerns about why or whether the law can work repentance, because I think that's not really too much of an issue for us here. Um, Would you just speak a paragraph on that, though? I mean, so Agricola, I, 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 for clarity, because I'm not entirely sure I got it. Right. Um, Agricola says repentance is in the gospel, mm-hmm. right? But Luther says, no, no, the law can bring about sorrow. That is the first part of repentance. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Okay. You have to have the demolition before you have the building up again. So then Luther wouldn't necessarily, I'm I'm asking, Mm -hmm. Luther would not necessarily put repentance in the law either as a result of the law, but it's this bridge between the law and the gospel. Am I thinking about it correctly? Yeah, repentance, rightly construed, has both law and gospel because it is the the sorrow that the law works over sin, and it is the, the faith or trust in God's promise that the gospel elicits. That's really, really helpful. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why <clears throat> the life of the believer as a life of repentance is one where daily law and gospel are working on you um, by, the, by the Holy Spirit in its two different ways, which we'll get to that in a little bit. One of the issues that keeps coming up for um, Luther is this question of can something else other than the law work the sorrow of, the, of repentance? Um, and Agricola <clears throat> keeps pointing to um, the text in Romans 2 where it talks about the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And um, Luther concedes that it's not just the law that does that, but nevertheless we don't get rid of the law. But I think this text on page 174 is interesting, particularly the second paragraph. Um, and I, I, want, I want to know if you think this is a valid theological move by Luther. Um, <clears throat> says, the gospel, properly speaking, is not what we do, but it is the preaching of the free forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake by faith. Thus it describes the person, the gift, and the place. Indeed, when it convicts vices, adulteries, murders, etc., then it is not in its proper office, but uses the office of the law to pursue and convict vices and to teach the life. How men who are already new and holy ought to enter the new life. Um, Do you think that is an appropriate move um, by Luther to say that, to, to concede to Agricola that yes, um, the goodness of God and even the gospel itself can work this part of repentance, but to describe it as the gospel is using the office of the law. Is that a, is that a confounding of the distinction? It seems like it. Hmm. 
when I read it, I, I was uh, taken back a little bit. Hmm. And I hold on to the idea that law and gospel cannot be bedfellows, but they work you know, in union with one another. Yeah. Um, so they operate often alongside. So the gospel, God's mercy preached, uh, which then stirs up to repentance, um, or convinces and convicts and all that. So again, the office of the keys, the preacher preaches, the Holy Spirit uses a different key to unlock repentance, to sorrow before them, restoring through the gospel. Mm -hmm. I, mean, that's, that's, I guess that's the phenomenon that is occurring. Yeah. But it's not the gospel that's doing the work per se, but maybe, I wouldn't say the law hidden in the gospel when you go there. I don't know how I precise. I don't know how I try to yeah. parse the word. And that, that's the thing that's curious to me about this text is because Luther can talk about obviously God has His proper and His alien work. Um, God's alien work is to kill you and um, to expose your sin, but His proper work is to give you all good gifts in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus can um, preach the law, um, but that too is his um, secondary or his alien work, because his pro proper work is to witness to the gospel, that is himself. Um, and so I understand those two distinctions, and you can even make the distinction in the Holy Spirit, as we'll come to later, but I wondered if this works um, to say that the gospel itself can use the op the office of the law to pursue and convict vices. I want. I just wonder. I've never heard Luther um, say that anywhere else. It doesn't all turn on the doctrine of God, though. I mean, he has a whole aria on um, how the Spirit is at work in the law too. Hmm. The Spirit is not only at work in the gospel, and the reason I say that is everything both originates and and drives back to. God the Father through this or through the Spirit and the Son. So the law, love God, love God, love others. You can't do it, law. The Spirit exposes that law. Yeah. And I mean I know he's saying the gospel, but if if, if we just replaced it with the gospel is properly speaking, not what we do. Ergo, the gospel is what the Spirit does. So it's not it's not all that crazy to to almost insert term, the spirit uses the law, office of the law to pursue and convict vices and to teach the life. Um, it, it, I don't know how this translates from German, right? But it's very possible that his antecedent is just kind of a missing antecedent of the assumption of the spirit based on what has occurred before this. Hmm. No? Possibly. A lot, a lot of this has to, may, may have I mean, this is not scripture. This is a man's writing, and we have to remember that. And 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 then translations is another issue. So I don't I don't know. I don't know that we can just come down one way or the other and really to know what he meant because of that. I'm, I'm thinking specifically, of course, of the obvious, but as John 14 or 16, that the Spirit has come into the world to convict the world of sin mm -hmm. and unrighteousness and something right. else. And I just feel like there he would still make the distinction, though, that insofar as the Spirit comes in the world to convict, it's, it's the, the, 
the spirit in the hidden God, um, where it's not the spirit as gift doing that to you. Um, so he still he can still make that distinction there, whereas here the distinction doesn't seem to latch doesn't seem to map on to that as well. Okay. Holy Spirit as the thing that comes to you as gift is still the thing that works on you in the law. But here, the gospel as the thing that gives you the gift can, can use the office of the law to speak through it to convict you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what, I wanna, <clears throat> what I think I'm sort of driving towards there is, um, is this just a function of the fact that um, the Decalogue is itself eternal um, and that in the end there is some sort of strict relationship of fulfillment between the law and the gospel. Is that the sort of thing that makes possible this, this understanding of the gospel using the office of the law? Is its eventual eschatological union, therefore, is that what you're asking? Mike? Yeah, I, I, and I'm grasping here because I, I, I'm fine with this explanation, but I just don't know how it works. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm honestly asking um, the brain uh, trust. I don't know. I'm not, I haven't been thinking hard about this, but I've just been thinking about the mixture of gospel and law in preaching mm-hmm. and how sometimes, even despite the fact that gospel and law is confounded in preaching and maybe a lot of preaching, God graciously helps to divide it in the heart of the believer. At least, you know, we're... When we're thinking about law and gospel preaching, we're very critical of the confounding of the two. And yet, I, I have friends in churches where maybe it's not as rightly divided or uh, stuff who just, it's happening in their life anyway. Yeah. Um, and I know that's not identical with what's here, but I almost feel like that's in an, in an instance in on the ground yeah. where the gospel is using the office of law and maybe vice versa in some strange way. Just speaking on the ground, not categorically or theoretically. Uh, and I don't know what that has to do with this, but this makes me go there with my mind. I th- yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. And um, it almost makes me go back to Second Samuel 12, um, where the statements that should be heard as promise and gospel are the, are the very things that are convicting. Right. Um, and that can become too analytical and too precise because law and gospel are in a lot of ways, like you say, an existential reality. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of the hearer. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's important to notice that he still here is making that law and gospel distinction. Um, but it's just, I, it might be just driving to that fact that in the life of the person who is addressed, yeah. uh, you can't always parcel out these things that easily. Yeah. Like in this moment I heard gospel, in this moment I heard law. And then, I don't know, that's why I take comfort in his ultimate phrase that the Holy Spirit's the only one who can rightly discern law from gospel. I think for a sermon to go from good to great, right, in the sense of law gospel, in this, in a Lutheran framework, it would have the the gospel has to be delivered in a specific way, right? Like Christ's blood shed for you, not just Christ's blood shed for sinners or a 
you know, kind of a very brief maybe explanation of the gospel, you know, Jesus paid for our sin or whatever, or talking about the gospel, but actually saying he died for you. Yeah. That that's where that that absolution is is found, right? Yeah, sure. When you say and use the phrase decalogue, mm-hmm. expound on that. The ten laws. Tell tell me what you want to say or mean when you say the decalogue is eternal. Yeah. Are we saying Old Testament decalogue? Totality? Exactly. Just kind of hammer down on that, would you? Yeah. Um, I mean, particularly the the Ten Commandments that are written on the tablets and given to the people, but which Luther says as the revelation of God's will, it's the very thing that is inscribed on the heart itself, and so much as the the human can have a natural understanding of. So you're saying the Ten Laws? Yeah, not not the not the whole law itself. Okay. Um, Only those ten. Which, I mean, I think most um, Jewish interpreters and Christian interpreters of the Bible would say that the Ten Commandments contain and summarize everything else that comes out um, in various ways and applications, but Luther always does make that distinction between the Ten and everything else. Big L law and little L law. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> was it was it in this book? I, I, I was, there was in one of our readings where somebody was talking about that kind of eventual or eschatological union between law and gospel and the Ten Commandments. How they don't say you must not or you may not; they say you will not. And um, so it's a future tense kind of oriented thing. So that in a way you can almost receive it as good news because it's like oh well, one day I will not murder. You know. Mm. So <laughs> it's and it kind of turns it on its head. Is that is that kind of what we're? You just blew my mind, bro. I feel like I feel like that that is getting something that's in, in here and that's in the bondage of the will. Yeah. Um, because Luther does talk about how the relationship of the person to the Decalogue is eternal, and so that it's a prophecy. It's yeah. an eschatological prophecy. And in, in the eschaton, it will be perpetually filled in us. Um, but the the other half of that is that. Um, one of Erasmus's arguments against Luther is that the, the, the Hebrew phrasing of commandments is um, you will or you will not. And for, and for Erasmus, that, the indicative implied ability. Yeah. Um, whereas for Luther, he was saying, you know, the Hebrew indicative is just a, it's another way of phrasing an imperative. So I, I, I feel like I heard both of those things in what you just said. Yeah, because I was talking, you could talk to Dr. Limbaugh about this, but I was talking to him specifically about First uh, John 3 a little ways back. And I was talking about, uh, uh, you know, the children of God and what they do and do not do. Um, very indicative-like. Uh, no one born of God, and the ESV says, makes a practice of sinning. Um, so no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Yeah. And it's just like, 
it's an indicative statement that typically gets turned on its head to feed, to, to induce guilt. You know, like, oh crap, I make a practice of sinning, and therefore I must not be a, uh, born of God. Yeah. Um, I was talking to John at length about this, and he was emphasizing the fact that it's a it's an indicative and that, ongoing. Yeah, yeah, grammar. Yeah, and that this is good news to be hoped in to one day when we are in the future will be truly and fully and really born of God at the resurrection in which we will not sin because I think ESV has a bad translation here. Yeah, making a practice is not a good Yeah, just sin at all, you know, and I think the cannot really brings that out. You're unable. A day in which, this is this is a word of hope in, uh, of a future day of resurrection in which you will be unable to sin. Yeah. <laughs> this is like awesome. That's what it means to be a child. Because it's not as law. It's just the way things are. Yeah. yeah, and that, that statement and that promise gives you room to go to battle against sin. But that, you know, that statement in 1 John 3 has to be held against the statement in 1 John 1. That if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We make God a liar if we say we don't sin. Um, yeah. And But holding those two things together is exactly what you have to do. But then I, I'll say those are the two verses that Luther uses in that addition to the small called articles. What does he do with them? <clears throat> he, he goes on to see, he just says, um, he doesn't take it in quite the way you just described yeah, it, but says, if you were to make a practice of sinning outside of this confession in 1 John 1, that would be where the problem comes. But you can't deny that... Um, you, you can't take 1 John 3 without 1 John 1, I guess is all he's saying. I think a lot of people read 1 John 1 as sin in general. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a sinner. You, you need to confess that you're a sinner. Now that you've done that, now you're a Christian, and now you shouldn't sin anymore. You shouldn't make, make a practice of sin. That's how I that's how I was taught that early, you know. A lot like Rome. Oh yeah. Like do, you do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So they, they they get around what you're saying, which I agree with you by saying, admit you're a sinner. Now you're a Christian. Now you shouldn't live in perpetual sin. Mm. There's no other option but to live in perpetual sin. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Perpetual that's obstinate. Sin? Um, not public it, it, sin. Isn't all sin opposite? I know. Yeah. I guess what I would, after, and this was through like a kind of 15 minute conversation with John, uh, Jono, but basically, yes, First John, you know, we sin here in the now in the reality, but yeah. this, but John here holds out a word of hope to us that in the future we will not sin because we will truly really be the children of God, which we are not yet fully. Yeah. Um, and so it's like a word of hope that encourages you to kind of live in light of your future existence. Like, this is who you're going to be, yeah. you know? So, and, but yet God calls you that now in yeah. advance. So, you know, I want to believe that, man. Yeah. It just doesn't, just not the plain reading of the text. And maybe the plain reading is the English translation and Greeks would have read that as their eschatological future. But, I don't know. So what, 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 what explain? Go ahead. What am I saying by that? Yeah. yeah. Just that. You have to hold John 3 with John 1. Hmm. And you have to be simile about it. Rather than, rather than John, John 3 and John 1 
being as compatible as we'd like simply because John 3 is eschatological and John 1 is present, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think we, we make a mistake, though, if we make something both eschatological but not also present. Sure. Like, because... Like, it could be both. Yeah. But if I were here just hearing the epistle read to me... Yeah. At, at least as someone who's in English, however you translate the Greek, I would just hear that as, dude, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Stop sending. Not, I wouldn't hear it as good news. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I don't either when I read that, but that's what sends me back to First John 1. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do take it as a harder word um, than it is. So. so it's interesting because... I, I, for a while, I've been convinced that the word we leave people with is the gospel, but the law must do its work. Interesting kind of re- revisiting page 190 regarding this con- conversation and context. Um, Luther spends a whole page on saying, look, the antinomians in certain parts basically completely take what I said 20 years ago. Um, but he says back then people were terrified. Everybody knew how crappy yeah. their sin made them. But now we got people going off the rails. And so what he's saying is there's a context to the law and how it should be spoken and to whom it should be spoken to and in what way. And so then I just say, okay, well, Luther, his project, law, gospel, got it. But first John in First John, his hearers needed something different with law and gospel of what order it came in and over an epistle because they would sit down and read it all at once, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he said that, I mean, he did make a distinction. He was like, back then we were fighting the papists. Yep. But now we've got different issues. And so I need to talk about this issue differently. Yeah. Not change the theology, but talk about it differently. I just think it's a brilliant pastoral move is all I'm yeah. going to say, yeah. which is what Zach's always saying is, how's it here hearing it? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does first jump they would have first jump one? I just think... A big part of that is people's context. And so he's like, now the antinomians are using the very words we were using 20 years ago, but they're totally misapplying them. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that's good. Uh, back then we were utterly terrified so that we trembled even at the sound of a fall- leaf falling off a tree. <laughs> this is why I say that we too first taught repentance stemming from love of righteousness. That is from the gospel. Because the people at that time were too contrite and had been led almost into despair and lived already in the midst of hell on account of the papacy. So that it was necessary, lest we wanted them to perish utterly, to lead them as quickly as possible back out of hell. So Luther's saying, whatever law we had, it was like 95% gospel, and that's what they needed. Our antinomians, wishing to strive for the same, if it pleases the gods, and singing nothing but sweet melodies... Meanwhile, do not care at all about the fact that the situation is completely different than it was at first. That is, that it is utterly perverted. This is why they make men who are secure in themselves even more secure so that they finally, well, not to revisit a thing, but so that they finally fall utterly out of grace, which must be done in many different ways. This is why I respond thus to the argument, repentance must be taught or begin out of love of righteousness. That is, among those who are and have been afflicted and contrite. And he continued on, but I think... That was my point. Context matters. Yeah. We're not doing this in a vacuum. Yeah, for sure. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. 
By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.